Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. So for the rest of us, let's, let's look at, get into the, the book of Philippians today. We're, we're coming, to the, to a, coming to the end of our series here in just a few weeks. And throughout our time in this letter to the Philippians, we've consistently had our status quo challenge. Because what the Apostle Paul has done over and over and over again is he has passed what we think what we believe, how we act towards one another, not through some kind of uh, rules-based grid, but through a grid of the cross of Jesus Christ. That that is kind of the, the way in which we are supposed to understand how we are, uh, how, what we are to believe, how we are to think, how we are to act towards one another and towards the world. It passes through the cross of Jesus. It's the cross and all that that brings with it that makes Christianity unique, that frames who we are. And listen, um, some of you who are visiting here with us this morning, particularly because of the day it is, let me, let me be up front. I love mothers. Love them. Uh, I both have a mother, obviously, and I'm married to a, a mother of, of four. I have the utmost and endearing respect for mothers. Frankly, I've learned more than I could put into words about how, uh, who God is um, by watching how he is imaged in, in, in mothers' But this morning, uh, our, our uh, sermon, our passage is not about mothers. Okay? It, this week, we turn to how we are to view the world around us, how we engage with our culture. And that is what Paul takes up this morning. So if you have your place in Philippians chapter 4, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. We're going to be reading just two verses, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. Let me, let me uh, throw out a, a bit of a warning, because for some of you, especially if you've grown up in the church, this passage is going to be very familiar, because you probably had to memorize it in Sunday school, you got a little gold star or something like that for it, which probably means that you, you are in danger this morning of thinking that you know what it means, of thinking that God can't possibly have anything new to say to you, because you've heard this a million times. Others of us are here this morning, and we're in danger because uh, we're going to hear a bunch of words that are going to sound like the church lady is saying them. And if you're too young to know who that is, just Google that later, um, because it's a great Saturday Night Live skit. Anyway, uh, and so what that means is you're in danger of kind of zoning this out as soon as you hear it, because it's going to sound like so much moralism. It's what exactly you expected from church. But let me, let me invite you, or challenge you, rather, to hear this again as if it were the fir- for the first time, and to hear it uh, passing it through the same grid that Paul does, through the cross. And if you don't know what that means yet, just wait. Because I'm going to love to show you. Okay, Let's hear the word of God. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any of those that are excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, right now, as we come into this time, even before we move into this text, I just want to take a minute and I just want to give you thanks for all of the ways that you are tirelessly uh, and 
and often thanklessly imaged in the lives of moms. Lord, there is something unique that we learn about you by watching our mothers, by watching, if we're married, watching our spouses, our wives who mother. We, we, we learn about you and we are thankful for that. And pray that today you would give encouragement to uh, the moms in this place especially, many of whom labor without thanks. Uh, the only thing they have to show for it is maybe a, a stained shirt from spit up or uh, another diaper to clean or um, more demands on their time. And, 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 and so, Lord, I pray that you would give them encouragement today. And as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Would you open them? Many of us are here from different experiences. We, some of us are here and we are full of doubts and questions and, and aren't sure what we think of you and, and not sure what we believe about Jesus. Would you, would you meet us right there? Some of us are here this morning and we are, we are uh, in a similar position. We are doubtful and skeptical and yet we know what we think we think about Jesus. Would you meet us there? Some of us are here and we are celebrating. We are celebrating the work that you're doing in our lives and we pray that you would meet us there. And others of us are here lamenting because life has gone off the rails. Would you meet us there? And for all of us, because we all have the same need, we pray that you would meet us with the gospel. You open our hearts to receive it, our ears to hear it, and our minds to understand it by the power of your spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So whether you're a Christian or not, and not everybody in this room is, okay, but whether you're a Christian or not this morning, it is probably true of you that all of us have something in common, that we've been taught to view uh, Christianity, especially, uh, taught, to, taught the view that Christians have to view the world in one of two ways, all right? Because in our society, we love binary, we love poles, we love opposites. So this is the, one of two ways, generally. One hand, on the one hand, is the retreatist mindset, right? The retreatist mindset that tells us that, that, that we are to see everything in the world as bad and to thus be avoided. So on the other opposite pole from the retreatist mindset is the assimilationist mindset that's to see everything in the world as, as good, or at least as far as those things are progressing in a given direction. And so thus we need to embrace it. I have been in both camps. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably been in both as well, in some form or another. When I first became a Christian, I was a retreatist. I only listened to Christian music, right? Newsboys, Jars of Clay, Cademan's Call, DC Talk. Yeah. Yeah. And I rejected anything that did not strictly cohere to how I understood the Bible. But the, then later, I kind of trended more towards the kind of the assimilationist camp, the other direction. And, and it, frankly, it wasn't long afterwards, by the way. You can only listen to so much of that music before you end up trending the other direction. Uh, but, but we do this, don't we? We do this. We, and then we need to throw in the fact that we can so easily confuse traditional values with biblical ones. Right? That as if, as if the things that we grew up with were all purely biblical or the things in traditional culture is all purely biblical. 
Or we confuse uh, progressive culture with love and what it means to be loving. We throw all that stuff in there. We're just in trouble. But this morning, our text gives us something different. It gives us two commands that are to govern how we engage with the world. And we're going to look at that in in these ways. There's an outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at at considering. We're going to look at practicing. And then we're going to look at applying. Just because that's convenient. Considering, practicing, and applying. And what we're going to see is this. That the gospel must become the lens through which we view both the brokenness and the beauty of the world. That the gospel must become the lens through which we view both the brokenness and the beauty of the world. And depending on where you fall in those two camps, one of those terms, either brokenness or beauty, is going to be a bit of a struggle. Okay? Let's start with considering uh, and, and looking so at, the, at common fare. Look at the first part of verse 8. Paul says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Now, stop there. If you're anything like me, when you hear this, you tend to get this image in your, uh, in your head of an older lady looking at you with a fake smile and, and saying something like, think happy thoughts. Right? As if what this means is uh, just kind of think good things all the time. But let me tell you, that's not what this is, so I need you to stay with me. Scholars will tell you that this list that Paul gives here is not very indicative of Christian thought at all. This is not the way that, honestly, you see in in the New Testament uh, these words, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. These aren't words that are necessarily uh, go together with what, what is known as Christian ethical teaching. As a matter of fact, this list of words, though you could find some of them in places like, say, James. This list of words is far more common in Stoic thought. Or, or in the general thought world of Greek moral theory, okay? Which is to say, the culture of the Philippians would have been very familiar with these kind of ideas. Very familiar with them. They are kind of ge- generic ethical ideas you would hear proclaimed in the culture that Paul was speaking to. Now, why does this matter? It matters because most of us, when we hear this list, we think what Paul is saying is, think all the time about spiritual things. Right? Think about spiritual things. But that's not what this is talking about. Paul is speaking to the people of his day, to Christians of his day, about uh, what would be common moral concepts, common moral ideas in the culture of the Philippians. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. All ideas that would have been touted during Paul's day by non-Christians. You with me? Non-Christians would have been touting these same kind of concepts. In other words, what is going on here is that Paul is listing virtues that would not have been uniquely Christian, at least in their initial understanding of it. You with me? Okay. Then he moves on to the idea of discernment. And here's why... All of this kind of, how all this come together. Look at the rest of this verse. He says, if there is anything, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, in other words, he's just gone. Whatever is this, whatever is this, whatever is this. And then he goes, if in all of those things, there is anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about this. Okay, so this is big. Listen close. 
If you're reading closely, you're going to notice the changes, right? Because initially, in all of those words, it follows a very poetic pattern. Whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. And now he changes. If, in fact. This is very artfully laid out. Here's what's going on. Paul's taking that list above. That list of cultural virtues, that list of things that would have been norms in the culture in which he is speaking to. And he's saying, look at those things and see if there is anything excellent or worthy of praise. In other words, Paul is calling Christians, he's calling us to neither automatically reject nor automatically affirm things that our culture is saying. But instead, to consider to discern, to think about those things. And and when he says, these things consider, think about these things, right? These things consider. Uh, Not to bore you, but in the grammatical form of the word in in the original, it means to continually do it, to constantly be thinking about these things, to constantly be in this process of discernment. In other words, Paul is commanding Christians to consistently consider, consistently think through, consistently discern the various cultural norms of the day to see if, in fact, there is anything good about them. Not to automatically assume there isn't or to automatically assume they're all great, but to consistently be thinking through them. Here's why, he's, here's why Paul's doing this. Uh, Paul would have believed, because the Bible teaches about these two concepts that theologians call um, general revelation on the one hand and common grace on the other. Okay, General revelation, common grace. If those are familiar to you, um, I'm going to explain them for a second so you can just kind of power down. For the rest of you, for most of us, would be my guess. Stick with me. General revelation is the notion that there are true things about God, about the world about us that are discernible just from life, just from living, just from what we see in creation. Now, these things are not adequate for salvation. In other words, it's not as if we can go for a walk in the countryside and be like, I'm saved, like I got it. We can't do that. Like that's not what the Bible's talking about. But what it does tell us is that all of creation tells of the glory of God. All of creation tells a true story about God. So that's general revelation. Common grace is the notion of of the common blessing of God to everyone. Again, that blessing isn't, uh, it's apart from salvation, but it means that some truth can be discerned apart from Scripture. Now, that truth will never contradict Scripture. Hmm. See, that's where we can kind of go askew. I learned this over here. The Bible says this. I'm going with what I learned over here. It never contradicts Scripture. And we'll get to that in a second. But it can be discovered. Paul says in Romans 1, in fact, in another letter that he wrote to the, city, the church in the city of Rome, that, that what we do as people, broken people, apart from relationship with God, is that we will continually suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. In other words, in our, in our lack of faithfulness to God, what we do is we take that truth that we're getting every day, true things about God that we're seeing, and we suppress it. We go, I don't like that. So what Paul is getting at is that some of the cultural values, some of the cultural ethics, some of the virtues of the day may in fact be excellent and worthy of praise. And for some of us in that room, that just hits us funny. Right? Because we've been taught, nah, uh 
That is not the way this is supposed to work. For many of us, that is crazy because we grew up in churches that were so adversarial to the culture, to the world, that such an idea, such an idea especially heard from up here, this isn't a pulpit, but if I, were, if I were in a pulpit, if you heard it from the pulpit, you'd think, this church is about to jump the faith, right? Or at least the dude who's standing in front. But what Paul is calling for is something different because Paul is also declaring that not all of those things Not all of those values, ethics, norms, virtues are in fact right either. Wouldn't it be simple if they were? Wouldn't it be simple if it were one or the other? We could go, either everything is to be rejected. I don't know how we do that. But we could go, well, everything's to be rejected. Or everything's to be accepted. That would be so much easier. And Paul isn't calling us to that. What he's calling us to is to think. To think Christianly about these things. He's calling for a process of a discernment. What is called in in kind of theological circles, exegeting or or, uh, interpreting the culture. He's saying, look, just because something is popular or deeply and widely held in a culture does not mean it is right. Nor does it mean it's wrong. You have to consider, you have to think, you have to process it. Truth is not determined by, by majority vote. Right? You have to think through these things. And here is, for me, one of the beautiful things about Christianity. Because Christianity declares that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. All all truth is God's truth. And it also declares that there is inherent dignity in all people because we are all made in the image of God. And so it does not limit truth and beauty to one cultural expression. It rightly concludes that there are some things that are just not good, right? There's some things that that are going to be expressed by a culture that just aren't good. We can't get around that. But it also declares that we can't get away from our created intent. The image of God in humanity, not just redeemed humanity, but in humanity is not gone. It may be marred, it may be bent, but it's not gone. And look, we know this, right? Because even in our day, even in our day of like extreme cultural expressions of sexual autonomy, right? We still believe that cheating is wrong. And not just our culture, like every culture seems to think that. Why? Why? In, in a world gone, like that, that we see everything is kind of, nah, we can do whatever we want with our bodies and da 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 da. Why is it we still think across the board that is wrong? Well, the Bible says it's because we were made for exclusive relationships. It would say that we were created for that, that, that the marriage relationship was made to reflect God's relationship to his people, which is bound by strong promises. And we can't escape that even if we want to push it down. It's still there. Paul is saying, don't reject. He's also saying, don't adopt too quickly. Instead, think Christianly about these culturally cherished Values, But how? That sounds good, but how do we think Christianly about them? Okay, Paul's going to tell us. How do we discern these things? Is it just what seems right to me? Is it like, well, I'm trusting I've got the Holy Spirit if I'm a Christian, and so therefore if it seems right to me, it'll be right? No. No, no. Hate to tell you, it's very easy to confuse the Holy Spirit with the cheese you ate for lunch. Just saying. 
Like, that seems right to me. I don't get indigestion about this issue. Like, well, have you... Did you eat well? Yes, I did. Well, maybe, you know. So, it's not just that. We've messed that up a ton, and we still do every day, whether, no matter what side of that spectrum you fall. Paul gives them a grid in the second command. The first command was to consider, to think through. The second one is to practice. Look at verse 9. Like I said, the, this whole passage is... is is divided up into two commands. The command to think on or consider and the command to practice. Paul is telling them to think on those things but practice something else. And so first Paul gives them content. He says, what you have learned and received and then later practice these things, okay? Learned and received. Both of these words are... um, they're, they're like student language, learner language. In fact, that word learned comes from the same root in the original, in the Greek, that our word for disciple comes from. It's the exact same root. And so what, what Paul is getting across there is those things that you have, you have been taught by me, the things that I have taught you. The second word received points to tradition. Paul uses this word consistently when he's talking about things received, either things he received from others or things the church received from those outside of him. It's like um, what the church has taught, what Christians believe, right? In 1 Corinthians, he gives us this summary of the gospel and he says, for I passed on to you what I received. In other words, from the eyewitnesses who saw it, that Jesus died that he rose again according to the scriptures, blah, 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 okay? So both of these words point to a kind of didactic relationship, a teacher-student relationship. The things that you have learned from me and the things that the, the church has been teaching practice those things, but that's not it. There's something else. Because at the end of the day, what is it that Paul taught? What is it that he uh, passed on as received, right? Was it just a list of rules? Was it like, here's, here are the, here's, here's the rules, do these things. I know that's what we think, right? That's what a lot of us have grown up believing. He kind of gave them some maxims. But what we know is that Paul continually says that he taught the gospel. Right? Paul said in, a, in another letter, I presume to know nothing among you except, who can help me? Christ and him crucified, right? That he's talking about the content of the gospel, the core of Christianity, that that what Paul taught, what they received, was the same thing he received and he passed on. It's the core of the gospel, that God created the world good, but that we broke it by betraying God, by sinning against him, and bringing all of humanity, not just a few, but all of us, by nature, into a state of guilt before God, into a state of brokenness before Him, like stuck in that place, and alienation from Him. But that God, purely out of His grace, sought to rescue us in Jesus. And He did that by by living perfectly for us, dying sacrificially in our place, and rising victoriously so that we could be made again. And then, even after that, as was celebrated in the church calendar this past week on Wednesday, that he ascended again into heaven to reign over all of creation. That is the content that is supposed to be the grid for us to judge the excellence of these cultural ideas. But he doesn't stop there. Keep reading. He talks about the things that you've learned and received. He also says, 
the things that also you've heard and seen in me, practice these things. Okay? So if the first we're talking about a more didactic, a student-learner type relationship, this is more of a, a, of a um, kind of a mentor-mentee relationship. Like, this is about character. Because you see, the gospel is not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of things up here. It's something that's supposed to produce a change here. And if it produces a change in our hearts, then it's supposed to work out through our hands. It creates a lifestyle. Look, if I tell you, I believe with all of my being that I can walk on water, but I never take a step on the pool, I don't believe it. Right? I don't believe it. If I say... God is good all the time. Man, we are Presbyterian in this place. If I say God is good all the time, thank you. Okay, good. Got to get a little mm in this place. All right? So if, we, if I say God is good all the time, but my life reflects a lack of trust in God, do I believe he is good? No, I do not. I do not. And if I say God saves sinners like me, but then my life is characterized by hiding my brokenness and promoting my self-righteousness, I do not believe it. Paul is saying, judge these cultural norms also by what you witnessed in me. And think about that for a minute. As an aside, that has huge implications for Christian leadership, does it not? If you aim to be a leader in Christ's church, Your words speak and your lives speak. And if one is disjointed from the other, guess what people will believe? Rightly, they will believe your actions. Leaders in Christ's church are not only those who communicate, but also who model the gospel. So like I said, that last couplet was a teacher-student relationship. This implies a a model and follower or a mentor-mentee relationship. And and this can be easily misunderstood, so follow me for a minute. Paul is not saying, look at my behavior and do exactly the behavior that I did. Because that would be really hard, because Paul says in a bunch of different places that his behavior at times can shift depending on who he's around so that he can win them. Right? For instance... He says in 1 Corinthians 9 that that he would act culturally like a Jew or culturally like a Gentile, a Greek, to bring the gospel to them. To take away all the other things that might offend so that the offense of the gospel might have its full work. So he must mean something else. It's basically this. Paul is claiming the outrageous claim in many ways, that his life lines up with the gospel. And he's saying, what you've seen and heard in me, that my life lines up with the gospel, do these things. What does that mean? That means that he believed he was a sinner in need of grace, not a generic sinner. You know what I mean by that, right? We can all go, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm not a generic sinner. Like, he specifically told people how he blew it. He didn't walk into a place and go, yeah, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, we're all sinners here in this, in this one happy sinner crowd. He went, I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, I killed people. That's me. Right? He wasn't a generic sinner. But at the same time, he claims the free grace of God in Jesus, and so he's not defined by that sin anymore. 
He lives to glorify God, to be conformed to the character of the life of Jesus and to serve him and not his own desires. So not only do we lay our cultural grid or lay our cultural ideas through the grid of the gospel as a theory, but also as a lifestyle, whatever conforms to that, we call excellent and praiseworthy. And if it does not, we reject it. We reject it. The gospel must become the lens through which we view both the brokenness and the beauty of the world. Now, let me speak in a more applied manner, if I can, for a minute. First, about fighting the Poles. And by that, I do not mean the people of Poland. Um, they're fine people. We don't want to fight them. Uh, but, but I mean the different Poles of our belief. And that is because, like I said earlier, we tend, you and I, we have a particular bent depending on a lot of things. Our story, our personality, uh, our, our understanding of the faith, like however we were taught it. We have a particular bent to either reject everything dealing with the culture or adopt it. And we do both rather blindly. We either think, well, this is a product of our godless culture, so this must be evil. Or, this seems so right, it must be okay, maybe the Bible's wrong. Right? So how do we avoid this? Paul tells us. Because you see, most of the time, those poles are governed by fear. They're governed by our fears. And and the gospel frees us from the fear that's normally associated with the drive to to both reject everything in culture or adopt everything in culture. It it frees us from the fear to claim uh, that either everything is broken or everything is beautiful. And it does so by teaching us that everything, in fact, is a mix of both. That even our most prized cultural, uh, traditionally cultural idols are in fact some kind of mix. Right? I wasn't going to do this. But let me give a good example. Let me give a great example. If you're, if you are, uh, if you're Presbyterian Reformed in this church, like you would self-identify and go, yes, I am Reformed theology. One of your champions, some of the champions that you, believe, that you hold to are the Puritans, correct? They are great. They had great ideas. Godly men and women. And of course the champion of, of Puritan theology here in this country would be Jonathan Edwards, right? Great guy. He had a lot of truth. You know what else he had? Slaves. Slaves that he owned. Beauty and brokenness. Is that a contradiction? Yes. Sin is crazy. The contradictions in you and me are the same way. We have to view it as a mix. We are a glorious ruin. We are a strange dance of beauty and brokenness. And that is why Paul says at the end of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. This is huge, so listen close. Paul is saying, the God of peace is not with you if you hold the line against immoral pagans. Nor is he with you if you make, every, make sure everyone likes you. The God of peace also isn't... <laughs> the God of peace also is not with you if you can so adequately deconstruct someone's worldview to show all their contradictions. The God of peace is with you if you practice the gospel. And that means understanding... That you are broken and in need of a Savior just like everyone else. Everyone. 
That means understanding that you are just as dependent on God to reveal truth to you as anyone else is. And that he has not revealed all of it to you. It means repenting of your own broken ways of seeking life independently of God and placing your faith instead in Christ. And it means understanding that the longings that you have, that I have, for things like safety, for peace, for acceptance, that those things can't be found in either being a culture warrior or a cultural coward, but through Jesus and him alone. So that helps us to fight against those poles. But the text also moves us towards gaining some gospel filters. What does it actually mean to do what Paul is talking about? There are some counterfeit ideas out there, so let me warn you about one of them. I kind of just mentioned it a second ago. I'm going to do it again. There are some, especially in the theological tradition of this church, the evangelical Reformed tradition, who seem to be satisfied to take a non-Christian worldview deconstruct it, kind of pick it apart, show all of the places of its contradictions, tell you how it doesn't make any sense or it's all borrowed on Christian ideas or whatever and then just kind of leave it there and go, got you figured out. That is not what Paul is talking about. What it means is taking what is so valuable in the culture and casting it through the lens of the gospel. For instance... Our culture has a strong value on the concept of love, right? Love is awesome. Guess what? We agree. We agree. Love is awesome. In fact, the gospel actually allows love to be more loving. Here's what I mean. In our culture, love is letting people do whatever they want and affirming them for it. But listen to me. If you have someone who's starving, sitting at a table, and in front of them is their dinner for the night, and it is a plate full of crushed glass, do you let them do what they want and affirm them for eating it? That would be crazy. They will die. It will shred them. That is not loving. That is hateful. That is hateful. The gospel declares that love is being willing to seek the flourishing of another at cost to yourself, just as Jesus did for us. In fact, the gospel allows us to do that because we know that he has already done that for us, and so we have nothing to lose. That that cost to us is minor compared to the cost that Jesus has done. Our culture thinks acceptance is awesome. Guess what? So do we. We believe acceptance is awesome too. But the gospel says that acceptance cannot be based on the idea that whatever we desire is good. That acceptance instead has to be based on the fact, the fact that there is nothing wrong with you that is not wrong with me. And if Jesus is great enough to save me, He can save you too. And so if you're here thinking, I have this desire, it must be right, the gospel says, no, 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 no. We are broken. We are broken. We all have desires that are broken by sin. And we are not defined by them, but by the love of God for us in Jesus. This is a place for you. Our culture thinks freedom is great. Guess what? So do we. Christians believe freedom is awesome. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
But the gospel tells us that freedom is being what we were meant to be. A fish is not free to live on the beach. Right? A fish is not free to live on the beach. But man, is he free when he gets in the water. Because that's where he was made to flourish. We are free when Christ reconciles us to God because you and I were made to live for him. He is the water we breathe, to use the analogy. Do you see it? The gospel takes all of those longings for love, for acceptance, for freedom, good longings, good longings, and answers them in Jesus. It allows us to tell the truth and to still be loved. It allows us to look at our culture and us in it and to see all of us by nature bent on finding life apart from God and instead come to Jesus to find in Him all that we ever hope for. And it does so because the gospel must become the lens through which we view both the brokenness and the beauty of the world. Would you pray with me? Lord, what we talked about tonight or this morning is a minefield. And it's a minefield because we want easy answers. We don't want to have to think. We want easy answers. We don't want to process things through the, through the scriptures, through the gospel, because that means we have to actually pay attention to it. And we got workouts to do and, and people to meet with and work to, to get to, family pressures. But Lord, you call us to live in such a way that is, that is completely backwards from what we think. You call us to take the gospel as our first principle. To pass all these things through it. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom to do so and help when we fail. Grace when we fail. Because we're all going to fail. And I pray that you would help us to be as a church a place where we seek to look at our city, our community, and find the things that are most valuable to our community and seek to bring the gospel to bear on those as well. We need you. We need you to do this in our lives. We need you to do this through us into the lives of others so that you might receive glory and they might flourish. And so we ask these things in Christ's name.